Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, in late November 1864, David R. Snelling visited his uncle, who then lived in Baldwin County near Milledgeville, Georgia. As a boy, David Snelling had worked in his uncle's fields alongside those his uncle enslaved. Now Snelling returned home as a lieutenant in the Army of the United States, commanding Company I of the 1st Alabama Cavalry, though detached on temporary duty as a commander of the headquarters escort for General William Tecumseh Sherman. The homecoming was not a happy one, at least for Snelling's uncle. The troopers who accompanied Snelling took what provisions they could find, and then at Snelling's direction, they burned down the family's cotton gin. Snelling and the 1st Alabama were some of the very small percentage of Unionists who persisted in the Deep South following secession. Yet Clayton Butler argues that their importance in the minds of both the Union and the Confederacy helps to shed light on some of the most crucial issues of the entire era. He examines these Unionists and those illuminated issues in his new book, True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. Clayton Butler, welcome to Historically Thinking. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, let's deal with something we were just, before we started recording. We said this is sort of uh, this is what strikes people as a contradiction in terms. What is Deep South Unionism? Sure. Well, Deep South Unionism uh, is first of all when I say uh, a Deep South Unionist, I am talking about in my book and in, in you know for the purposes of this conversation, I'm talking about white unionists. Yes. Because uh, as I think it's for his people interested in his Civil War history. Uh, understanding, you know, a black Southern Unionist is is understanding their motivation is not quite such a contradiction in terms. Um, a white Southern Unionist is a resident of the the Confederacy, especially the original six seceding states. Uh, for my purposes, Alabama, Louisiana, um, Mississippi, the 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 Deep South, um, who rejected the Confederacy unequivocally and remained unconditionally loyal to the Union, maintained an unbroken uh, citizenship, loyalty to the Constitution, and who, for the purposes of my research, um, reflected that loyalty by enlisting in the Union Army, which was the most unambiguous expression of loyalty that I believe one could make during the Civil War. Um, So, it can be very difficult to determine national loyalty when you're talking about the, uh, the Civil War era. There's a lot of ambiguity to it. There are layers of national loyalty, as historians have done really good research unpacking uh, in the past. Um, there's sort of, you can have anti-Confederate white Southerners who wouldn't consider themselves unconditional Unionists. You can have people who consider themselves and, and tried to maintain a true neutrality. Uh, for the purposes of my research and my book, I am interested in unconditional Unionists, ones who maintained a positive unionism, a positive loyalty to the United States, and rejection of the Confederacy. To the uh, extent of actually enlisting in the, cor- grand, the, the Army of the Republic. Correct. Volunteering mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for, for union service, um, which in the Deep South, for a white uh, resident of Alabama or Louisiana to volunteer for the Union Army, get, you know, once they... They, they made themselves that opportunity, was a profound statement of dissent uh, from the Confederacy, from the, the, that Confederate nation-building project that they rejected. So, Unionists 
in that sense, volunteering for the army, you know, putting their lives on the line for the the, the concept of union, which we're, then we're going to have to go back to. And sure. Just why is that so important? Second, deep south, um, would that be South Carolina, Georgia, yes. Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas? And Texas. Uh, those are the original seceding states, the yep. ones who seceded prior to the firing of Fort Sumter, uh, as opposed to the upper south, which North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, Arkansas, um, that constituted actually the bulk of the Confederacy's uh, manpower and troops. Uh, the, was the Upper South? Was the Upper South, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, absolutely. Because of the size of their white populations? Correct, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and that is where when one talks about and look, has looked at, uh, when scholars have looked at unionism among white Southerners in the past, it's generally been located in places like Western Virginia, which we know, you know, Virginia's partitioned as a result of the Civil War uh, due to the degree of unionism in the western part of that state. Eastern Tennessee is notorious or famous, depending on your perspective, for its unionism during the war. Mm -hmm. um, places like Missouri, Arkansas, Kentucky, places in the Upper South, the Trans-Mississippi West, are the ones more traditionally associated with white unionism. Whereas the Deep South, the states like Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, the real, in some ways, heartland of the Confederacy, uh, unionism has been... Certainly, uh, to be fair, it was less pronounced than in those upper south states, but it did exist and uh, has been more or less uh, overlooked by historians uh, in the past. What percentage of the white population uh, consists of these unionists? I said it was a very small percentage. Is that was that? Was, oh, was certainly, that, yeah. Uh, it, it depends on, of course, it depends on where you are in the deep south, uh, but in places like Alabama, Louisiana, you're talking about 10%? That much. Five, five or ten percent. Yeah, there are sections of northern Alabama that have, I think, a degree of that display a degree of unionism that I think would would surprise people. Yeah. Uh, cities like New Orleans uh, in Louisiana d display a, a degree of unionism that I think has not been properly. You know, some scholars. I'm not the first to to discuss this, but I think in terms of uh, the general tenor of discussion uh, and and popular conceptions of the Confederacy and the and and the Deep South. Um, are not really reckoned with to the degree that they might be. So why? I mean, we'll get to this more, but I guess, but we, we may, may as well start doing it now. Um, I remember a great essay by Bertrand Wyatt Brown uh, on, I think it was Primitive Baptists, mm -hmm. and he, I think, mentions in passing that Primitive Baptists that sort of follow the arc of the Appalachians mm -hmm. all the way down through northern Alabama mm -hmm. uh, and intrudes into Mississippi. I think he mentions in passing that there is a, a profound, at least an anti-Confederate sentiment amongst Primitive Baptists. Is, is this one of the things that we, we, we see? I mean, I've been thinking a lot lately about the backcountry Carolinas and Georgia and the American Revolution, and where one loyalist famously said it's like a patchwork quilt. Mm -hmm. There's a square of loyalists and a square of, uh, you know. It, mm -hmm. But that doesn't sound like what we've got with unions. We sound like we've got more geographical concentrations rather than evenly distributed across the map. Yeah, you do. You absolutely have... Um you have pockets of unionism based on economic conditions, based on social conditions that, that sort of give rise to this proclivity for unionism. Uh, the, the unionism that you mentioned in the, 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 in, in, in the Appalachian Mountains, in, uh, in those areas, is where unionism has been traditionally uh, located yeah. by historians in the past. And the reason for that, uh, people tend to point to the fact that they have much lower rates of slave ownership and a much lower dependence on uh, a slave-based economy, slavery-based economy. So 
the motivation for secession in terms of the threat of emancipation, the threat of the end of the slave system, simply did not exist to the same degree in those areas and thus uh, did not have as, as great of an impetus upon... But you're saying that's too simple um, because we've got places like, well, famously the Kingdom of Jones. Yes. We've got places like in Mississippi, we've got, and we've got New Orleans, mm -hmm. we've got Union Senate, so there's, there's something else going on here. Besides yeah, absolutely. Um, besides just... Appalachia being weird, which would be yeah. like a, sort of the neo-Confederate defense, right? Sure, and <laughs> that was kind of, that is kind of the lost cause. Well, you know, you can't. What do you expect from a bunch of you know hillbillies? That's that's absolutely right. That is a, a major um, sort of bequest of lost cause historians. Yeah. Uh, Lin, Walter Linwood Fleming, the very famous historian, the, the LSU lectures are named mm -hmm. after. Um, he has a great book about uh, Alabama. His foundational book came out in 1912, I want to say, about Alabama during the Civil War. Uh, and Reconstruction, and he is so dismissive of the pockets of Unionism in the northern parts of the state, and that's the foothills of the Appalachians, as you mm -hmm. say, in northern Alabama. He says, you know, the, those Unionists from places like Winston County, these are the people who shoot at tax collectors today. <laughs> He's very yeah. derisory towards them. He views them as as sort of outside of polite, dignified mm -hmm. white Southern society. Yeah, you can play that. You can play that class game yeah, all the time. Precisely. William Alexander Percy and Lanterns on the Levee yes. describes. The segregationist, you know, uh, whites living in the Pine Hills, basically, as mm -hmm. fascists, you know, mm -hmm. who've been parachuted into the South. Mm -hmm. But same class snobbery, but completely different, you know, shoe. And that's a great book, by the way. I'm it glad is. you mentioned that. I love that book. Um, but, and, and, and something you've just touched on, which I think we'll, we'll probably circle back to later in the conversation, hopefully, is that the William Alexander Percy's, the, the Walter Linwood Fleming's, would also point to these... Um, the upcountry sort of lower class as they saw it, uh, white uh, farmers as actually more racist, more anti-black uh, than the sort of polite face of the southern gentry um, sort of saw themselves. And that, that's something that uh, really does emerge uh, when you look at unionism uh, as it carries through into Reconstruction in the later part of the, of the century. But we'll, I think we can yeah, probably we'll circle back to that later. Um, one thing I also want to mention um, that I think you touched on a little bit in terms of the patchwork is when one talks about uh, unionism in places like Western Virginia, Eastern Tennessee, but also especially in the Deep South where uh, my unionists show up, you can talk about unionist regions or regions where unionism is, is, is more pronounced and there's clusters of it, but it's never a ubiquitous phenomenon anywhere in the South. When you talk about a unionist section of West Virginia or East Tennessee, you're still talking, there's, there's huge numbers of Confederates in those areas. And it can be very easy to think of West Virginia as unionist. Right. Knoxville is a capital of some, no. some different empire, of, an empire of unions. Yeah, as if the Confederacy doesn't have a very strong hold among many, many people there among, uh, and real loyalty. You're, when you talk about unionism in those places, you're talking about 50-50, maybe. Right. Um, and that's important to keep in mind. There's nowhere in the, in the South... Nowhere in any state uh, where slavery is legal in 1860 where unionists don't have to watch their back. Right. Uh, 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 and uh, I think that even applies to Delaware. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least in Sussex Anywhere County. south of the Mason-Dixon line, yeah, unionism yeah. Is, is a, uh, you know, maybe in, in parts of Maryland, uh, but, but as you said. I, I was it, once looked at the, the 1860 election in Anne Arundel County mm. when I was looking at something else just out of, for kicks. Lincoln got two votes. In Anne Arundel, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, two votes. Is Anne Arundel uh, Eastern Shore? Annapolis. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it's, you know, it's 
Okay. I yeah. mean, I mean it was, I'm sure it was different. He got more in, in Western Maryland. But if you want to gauge it by people willing to show up and vote for Republicans, mm-hmm. a sort of early unionist senator. Non-existent support Not for existent, Republicans. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, does, that's, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is... Um, how does this unionism begin? You talk about springs of unconditional unionism. Yeah. What are those springs? I mean, flowing up deep in the ground. And yeah. Then, and, and from there, let's go on to, like, how is unionism an ideology that we've forgotten about? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's a very important question. I'm glad you, you, you brought it up and allowed me to sort of to unpack it a little bit. Um, unionism, as you say, as a concept uh, worth fighting for in and of itself, unionism as a cause is something that is almost totally lost uh, on the public consciousness today in the United States because we have lost sight of the tenuousness of the American experiment in the 20th century. It's impossible for anybody who who was born in the 20th century to really unlearn the idea of America as a global superpower, as a success story, uh, as one where democracy has prevailed, where um, those values that we have become almost cliched were something that were not taken for granted by 19th century Americans. Um, The union to a 19th century white American, again, I should clarify, is something that represents political, economic, and religious freedom in a way that really didn't exist uh, elsewhere in the world at that stage. The ability to rise in the world economically to not be tied to the land. I mean, you know, it, it, right up into into the 1850s, say, and for a Russian peasant, you were you know literally tied to the land in a way uh, that made a, somewhere like America seem miraculous in the sense of the amount of uh, opportunity to farm your own land, to to, to own your own sort of uh, farm. So the opportunity to to rise economically. Uh, to not have an actual formal class system, which again seems very antiquated, but in the 19th century was something that was still very real in much of the world. Religious freedom, which again we can take for granted these days, but was not something that people took for granted uh, in the in the 19th century. The the uh, there was of course religious bigotry, religious persecution um, to varying degrees, but. The United States was a country that had Catholics, many different varieties of, of Protestant denominations. Jews. Jews, of course, yes. Um, and, and all of them, especially in places like the South, like New Orleans, like Richmond. Um, Big synagogue in Montgomery, Alabama. No, absolutely. I mean, we're here at UVA. Um, there's a great statue on the UVA lawn of, uh, of Homer. It was sculpted by Moses Ezekiel, who was a Richmond Jew, fought in the Army of Northern Virginia. Um, yeah. Actually, was granted uh, reprieve from duty by Lee himself uh, to to observe Passover um, at one stage. I think eighteen sixty four. So yes, uh, relig- that, that's not happening in the Imperial Russian Army quite as much. No, we have to say that's that's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right, um, and that is something that German immigrants, Irish immigrants, uh, are acutely conscious of in the nineteen. That's why they're. That's a big reason why they're coming. You know, there's there's always a push from Europe in terms of hunger, p- political persecution, religious persecution, but there's also a very strong pull to the United States because of these freedoms. And, and there's a this is and this explains what now seems over the top rhetoric from Lincoln, last best hope. This is you know, that's exactly right. The government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. That is what the union. That is Lincoln distilling unionism into a very 
tidy phrase, which he had that genius for. That's what the union means to people uh, in the 19th century. And one thing that I think um, is, is important to, to keep in mind is that Southern Unionists uh, adhered to a unionism that was basically identical, identical to the unionism that, that Northerners were fighting for. That uh, government by the people, for the people... Um, that the Union represented and that the Confederacy, by seceding, had essentially tried to, to explode because they rejected a perfectly valid election result. And now a gross political pundit question, 1860 style. Who did they vote for in the 1860 election? It's a fabulous now, question. Now, usually, you know, here's, here's what I would think, mm-hmm. um, because up until reading this book, I took it for granted that they're only real units in the South or in the Upper South. Right. And I figured they all vote for John Bell's... John Bell. John Bell. Yeah. Not John Bell Hood. Right. Uh, John Bell's... Not John Bell. The Constitutional Unionist Party. Correct. But then I realized, oh, when I, even as soon as I opened up your book, these guys are the people that Douglas was trying to reach when he campaigned in the South. Exactly. They, exactly. they were voting for North, the Northern, quote-unquote, Northern Democrats, probably. Yes. It, it, it did catch me by surprise uh, that... When we talk about unionism in the South, as you as you very rightly say, it's mostly concentrated in, in the Upper South. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about unionists in the Upper South, there's a strong correlation between unionism and the Whig mm-hmm. Party, uh, which had always been the, the Whigs, in some ways, the heirs to the Federalist Party, the much more nationalist um, uh, sort of ideologically oriented party. And as you say, uh, Bell carries, I believe, Virginia and Tennessee uh, in, in the election because this is the Upper South um, that uh, has a strong Unionist contingent in it. Um, but in the Deep South, Unionists tended to be Democrats. And that's something that surprised me in my research that I didn't realize. And most people who, who, who know about the Civil War era and have studied the politics know that there was a Northern Democratic candidate and a Southern Democratic candidate. The Northern Democratic candidate was Stephen Douglas. Uh, the Southern Democratic candidate was um, John C. Breckinridge. Um, and it, I think, is very widely presumed that anywhere that the Democratic Party carried in the South was carried by Breckinridge. But the areas that sent the most Unionists into the, into the Union Army, the most unconditional Unionists, they actually went for Douglas. Uh, Douglas carried a number of counties in Alabama, uh, the places that, like, um, around Huntsville, the places that, that had the strongest Union contingent in that state. Douglas made a strong, carried a couple parishes in Louisiana and made a strong showing in New Orleans. Because for Democrats in, in, the, in the South, in the Deep South, he is the Unionist candidate. Breckinridge can't win the national election Pretty much everybody knows that he's Breckenridge isn't going to carry us to any votes in the North whatsoever. Um, so if you if you are a Democrat in the South and you want to vote for a Democrat but you want a chance to maybe win the election, you vote for Douglas mm-hmm. because Douglas's election would not have resulted in secession, mm-hmm. um, and that's why he does well in the South. And as you say, Douglas um, is when the election happens is in Alabama. I believe he's in Montgomery when yeah. he when he learns that he has lost to Lincoln, yeah. and, he, and he's the only person. He, Lincoln, of course, doesn't campaign in the South. No, it would have been dangerous. Breckenridge does not campaign in the North. No. Ditto. 
I don't, John Bell doesn't bother, I don't think he campaigns at all. No, no. I mean, it's not, I'm not exactly up on the John Bell campaign of 1860, yeah. but Douglas actually does a whistle-stop tour of the South, I think. Yeah, in, in many ways, Douglas is the only real national candidate yeah. in that election, and the fact that he doesn't win is it, you know, reflects the fact that the country's about to split in half. Yeah. And uh, a fun, sort of, sort of, sort of fun fact, the only state that, um, had counties that went one had some counties go to all four uh, candidates is Missouri. Okay. Uh, Missouri has counties vote for Douglas Lincoln Bell and uh, Breckenridge. <laughs> so which, as Missouri which, goes, which, so, which predicts the next four years of of turmoil and tumult. That's precise. That's exactly right. It, and then you, that it says quite a lot about mm-hmm. the state of Missouri in eighteen sixteen. The chaos that's about to go yeah. off in that in that yeah. state. So, this this uh, the fact that Douglas carries counties in Alabama, that Douglas uh, and that these Unionists are Democrats in the Deep South. Again, I think maybe we'll circle back to this later in the conversation. Has very important ramifications for Reconstruction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. These people are known about in the North from the election onwards. Mm-hmm. What's their importance to people in the North? They have a they have a. a, a they have a sort of maybe an, an over importance, but they have a, they have, but they have a tremendous importance in the popular press. Yes, well, Republicans, uh, Lincoln among them, um, basically very consistently overestimate the degree of latent unionism in the in the in the would be in the proto Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, they expect essentially that there's a small uh, cadre of fire eaters, really hardcore secessionists who are. Um, sort of beguiling most of the white South and goading them into secession that they don't really want. Mm-hmm. And that when the Union Army shows up, they'll realize the sort of error of their ways and that they are Unionists at heart. Um, this is sort of pretty consistently disproven over the course of the war. The, the degree of Confederate nationalism is higher than most in the North, especially Republicans uh, are, are willing to sort of uh, reconcile themselves to it. Yeah. Which is why the unconditional unionists of the Deep South have this profoundly important symbolic role for them, because they are proof mm-hmm. uh, of this latent unionism, even in places like Alabama, in Louisiana. Um, not South Carolina. It's sort of funny. Lincoln says, you know, there's, there's unionists in every state in the South. Maybe not South Carolina. <laughs> it's always South Carolina is the exception. Well, it always is, as yeah. we know in Southern history. That's yeah. right. Yeah. South, the, the, what's the line about South Carolina? Too large for too small for a republic, too large for an insane asylum. Yes, that's, like that's it. it. Yeah. Um, it's important to keep in mind here is that for a white Southerner of Unionist sympathies to join the Union Army, they have to have access to the Union Army, yeah. um, which is uh, a very a very sort of you can overlook that that reality a lot uh, very easier, easily. A lot easier in Maryland. Precisely. And that's why when the Union Army arrives in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and the Union Army has a strong foothold uh, in Corinth, Mississippi, by the middle of 1862, these are the two hubs uh, of enlistment of Unionists from North Alabama, Northern Mississippi, uh, and in Louisiana, they go to New Orleans. Um, in order to... You know, the Union Army had to come to them uh, for these Unionists to be able to express that Unionism. Otherwise, they have to do what pe- what escaping, you know, people freeing themselves from slavery. Yeah. They take, they're, they're on, these guys are on sort of underground railroad themselves. But, but, as, they can't, but it's very difficult because the South 
has become militarized in a way it wasn't even in 1858. Oh, yeah. I mean, if the Union Army isn't in Corinth, Mississippi, right. a guy in Alabama has no chance of enlisting in the Union Army in the same way that um, wherever the Union Army went in the Confederacy during the war, enslaved people came to them. So the Union Army really was this beacon of freedom because it gave enslaved people in the Deep South access to safety uh, in a de to a degree that they never had before. You know, if you're an enslaved person trying to run to freedom, you know, you can't just take off from your Mississippi plantation. You have That's hundreds of miles you have to go before you have any chance of finding uh, safety. You know, Kentucky, Maryland, uh, Virginia, these, these places are more and more plausible. But that's what the war does to the slave system that uh, is so profoundly damaging to, the, to slavery as an institution is the Union Army goes deep into the South yeah. and undermines it because people from, you know, enslaved people in Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Georgia, all of a sudden, they're, all of a sudden they're five miles from a Union camp. And, and so, that's a risk they can take. And so it turns out are also these persistent Unionists. That's right, exactly. Um, some of them include, uh, one of them is, is Jeremiah Clemens. Could you... Well, I mean, this is this is a kind of unusual. Yeah, Jeremiah Clemens is an interesting guy. He is Clemens of the um, Samuel Clemens. He's he's related to Mark Twain, or Mark Twain is related to him, I should say. Uh, Clemens is a is a former uh, U.S. senator from uh, Northern Alabama. He's a Democrat, like I said. He's one of these unionists who's a Democrat, um, and he was a delegate to the Alabama Secession Convention, spoke against secession. Um, secession in Alabama passes actually is a much tighter vote than I think many people realize. Uh, it was 61 to 39 uh, to secede, which the six and the three can kind of throw people off because, you know, it's 60-40 uh, if you go one vote the other, either way. Um, and Clemens essentially accedes to what he views as the Democratic white democratic will of the state but is and goes along with confederacy as as the, the sort of stated um decision of of the of the the people through their representatives but as soon as the union army shows up in alabama he says i am a unionist mm -hmm. you know I, I i've never been on board with the confederacy um and he he is a unionist he expresses his unionism in very similar terms to the ones we were we were talking about earlier um and he becomes a very important figurehead for the unionists of Alabama, corresponds with members of the Lincoln administration, with Lincoln himself, with Johnson later, um, and um, essentially gives voice in a way that very few other figures have done, or did do, I should say, uh, for the, the unionists of the Deep South, and especially Alabama. So, in the meantime, and we've got someone very at the very highest level of American politics as a, as a former senator. Yeah. And we've also got well this sort of first Alabama as a sort of pan southern mo movement, which actually had ninety eight South Carolina born volunteers. Yeah. And with these guys who are you know even if the Union Army is is quite close, you say in stark contrast to those in the North who squirmed at the prospect of the draft, these Southern Unionists took enormous risks just to volunteer. They laid it, had to lie out in woods, travel by night, avoid roads, bloodhounds, Confederate cavalry, all for the opportunity, as the Northern press like to emphasize, to put their lives on the line for the Union. Yeah. Um, that's right. That's um, something that you see over and over again in accounts of, of Southern Unionists is the degree of peril that they had to endure just for the opportunity to enlist in the Army. You know, talk about out of the frying pan, uh, you know. 
And um, this is something that the northern press, especially the Republican press, is constantly, um, you know, attacking Democratic and, and peace Democrats with. It's like, look, you guys are, squir- as you say, um, they're squirming at the draft. They're, they're encouraging guys in Indiana to sort of um, to resist uh, fighting and to, to, to pull for peace with the Confederacy. Meanwhile, white uh, Southerners from the Deep South are are going to extremely extreme lengths uh, just for the opportunity to enlist the opposite sort of of these um, shirking as they say see it uh, northerners and you know they hold them up consistently as an example of uh, what the union cause ought to be fighting for. So briefly, what's the career first Alabama? I mean, yeah, as you say, most notably some of their most notable. Well, glamorous services on the march through Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> Leading the way with people with local knowledge of conditions and ground and geography. Mm-hmm. So these are invaluable at that point. But what yes. else what else do they do? Well, so the, the first Alabama Cavalry is formed in late eighteen sixty two. Um, as Union Brass starts to notice, uh, and they can't help but notice these hundreds and ultimately thousands of, of white Alabamians coming into the lines. Talking three thousand? Yeah, total in the regiment over the course of its history, mm-hmm. over the course of its career I should say. Um, coming into the lines at Corinth, asking to enlist uh, in the army, um, they they f- they form a regiment uh, of the first Alabama cavalry in you know August to October. They're sort of mustered in, and um, the colonel put in charge uh, of the first Alabama cavalry is a guy named George Spencer, uh, who is going to have subsequently quite an interesting career as the first Republican senator from Alabama during Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, a prototypical carpetbagger, mm-hmm. but um, the the regiment is is seen as the sort of tip of the spear of this latent white Southern Unionism that the North is trying to encourage and and wield against the Confederacy, um, and they are engaged in a lot of typical cavalry uh, sort of assignments. Um, over the course of 1862, 1863, uh, into early 1864, um, a, a, a number of companies of the 1st Alabama Cavalry are captured as part of Strait's raid, where he goes uh, into northern Mississippi, northern Alabama, and eventually is captured in, in northern Georgia. And uh, there's a sort of interesting moment where um, the governor of Alabama and the Confederate Secretary of War are corresponding about the fact that, that Forrest has captured a couple companies of, of white Alabamians. Uh, we were, they're confused about their existence. They say, who the hell are these guys? And then they say, you know, what do we do about them? Because they're not normal. They don't, they're, they're confused about how to treat these guys because they're not normal Northern Union soldiers. And so the governor of Alabama is like, what do you want me to do, you know, to, to the Confederate Secretary of War? The Confederate Secretary of War actually says, you know, um, send them, hold on to these guys. You know, we can, we, we're going to make an example of them uh, to other Southern Unions. They're actually exchanged sort of fortuitously before, uh, before they can be remanded to, I guess, Confederate federal custody. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, the existence of this regiment, the existence of these POWs triggers this very interesting conversation about Confederate policy. Um, in, in what happened later on when some of these guys are captured? I mean, do do people who are uh, captured by the Confederacy do some of them then enlist back in the CSA or do not some that of, I know of? You know? Um, I know that there were a number of uh, 
uh, first Alabama Cavalry POWs who died at Andersonville. Uh, quite a high percentage, actually, uh, of POWs. But as far as I've been able to find, um, in contrast to black Union soldiers uh, late in the war when they encountered Confederate troops, uh, white, Alba- white Union soldiers were typically allowed to surrender um, as long as they weren't fighting actively with with, with black soldiers. We should mention that. We should mention Fort Pillow br- briefly. Even though sure. This is not, as we said earlier, this is this is West Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, deep South Unionists. Yeah. Rather than uh, uh, the Alabama. But it's, it's, imp- it's important to connect that to what you just said. Sure. Well, something of a digression. Yeah. Uh, but um, the, the Fort Pillow Massacre of 1864 uh, is probably the single most infamous incident of um, a sort of atrocity, uh, war crime, uh, as it were, uh, during the Civil War. It becomes a byword for cruelty and barbarity um, for contemporaries for years to come, uh, Fort Pillow. And essentially, uh, the story goes that um, Nathan Bedford Forrest and his Confederate cavalry overrun a, overrun a Union fort, and the men who are trying to surrender, uh, mostly uh, black USCT Union soldiers, are not allowed to surrender and are killed. Um, United States Colored Troops. United States Colored Troops, I yeah. should say. And it's very famous as an incident of sort of white, sort of, uh, in some ways redundant, white Confederate uh, rage against, you know, yeah. the, the existence of black Union troops. But I think an element of that story that is not as widely known is that half of the garrison of Fort Pillow are consist of white Southern Unionists who also are massacred alongside their black comrades for being race traitors uh, as Confederates, as forest Confederates see them. Um, so that's an instance where this alliance of white Southern Unionists and black Union soldiers um, elicits essentially a murderous rage from, from forest Confederates and results in a, a, an infamous massacre. So um, that is probably the, the most dramatic episode um, of white Southern Unionism in the Deep South uh, that I think is probably not properly uh, known um, and, and put in the right context for its for scholars. So is there anything else we should talk about the first Alabama in order, as we look forward towards the end of the war and, and, uh, and Reconstruction? Well, just that uh, the first Alabama has developed something of a national reputation. They, as you said, they go uh, in the vanguard of Sherman's march to the sea. Mm-hmm. And they are really quite hard on the secessionist class, the planter class of Georgia. They are deeply, deeply resentful of the secessionist class. They hate them mm-hmm. uh, with a degree that actually, you know, many of the northern Union troops don't quite match because they don't have the same, they haven't been chased out of their homes. They haven't been refugeed to the same degree as the, these Alabamians. And they, they really take a measure of revenge on the march to the sea and are actually explicitly censured um, by, uh, by, by officers for their, their sort of um, pillaging. Uh, although Sherman clearly knew exactly what he was doing by deploying them out front. But when they get to Savannah, there's a, a piece in, in the New York in New York papers saying, Do you all know that there's an Alabama regiment here and, and they're they're you know doing incredible service and they're unconditionally loyal. They're all gonna vote for you know, they all voted for Lincoln and um, you know, this is They're really looking forward to going to South Carolina. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Especially the ones from South probably the ones from South Carolina. 
Yeah, which we knew about, which we knew. Yeah, about no, I think a lot of the South Carolinian-born are one are are probably individuals who were born in South Carolina, probably in the mountains, and migrated to Alabama in their youth. Um, that's the most likely explanation for the South Carolina birthplace, um, because as contemporaries uh, recognize their native white South Carolina unionism was more or less non-existent yeah. um, to a degree that you know surprised even even me somebody who found unionism in all these deep sub states found it everywhere. yeah well let's um, let's look for let's move to reconstruction uh, because you're a deep South unionist does not mean that you're necessarily against slavery no it doesn't mean that you're even necessarily against the spread of slavery into the territories, mm -hmm. which is the issue of the 1860 election. Mm -hmm. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're in favor of black men getting the vote. No. Uh, it's very important in, if you if one is to understand the 19th century, um, to understand that uh, the Civil War, emancipation, black civil rights are all uh, discrete issues to these, to these people that don't necessarily follow from one another, and that for many Northerners, but especially for my white Southern Unionists that I, that I encountered, they view emancipation as a, as a means to an end uh, of winning the war uh, and restoring the integrity of the Union. They understood that slavery was the cause of secession, that um, Slavery might have to be destroyed in order to prevent another civil war in the future because they saw it as the seed of secession what had sort of caused the war in the first place, but um, One has to keep in mind that an antipathy towards Slavery as an institution does not remotely indicate a sympathy for enslaved people um, a, An instructive case here is to think of these unionists uh, in the deep south as similar in their outlook to somebody like Andrew Johnson. I was just thinking that Andrew yeah. Johnson is kind of becomes now that you think about it, their bow ideal of a of a, of a politician. That's right. Andrew Johnson. Uh, the the uh, if you want to understand the politics of these Alabama unionists, it really reflects uh, or Andrew Johnson reflects it very closely. They saw him as one of them. Mm -hmm. um, this is somebody who hated slavery and hated enslaved people at yeah. the same time. Um, hated the the uh, the power of of slaveholders. A, a, a nice way to think about it that I've always found helpful is if you're if you're a sort of a, one of these unionists and Andrew Johnson, you don't think you don't dislike three fifths the three fifths compromise, right? That that counted uh, enslaved people as three fifths of a person for purposes of representation in Congress. You don't hate three fifths because it counts a slave as three fifths of a person. You hate three fifths. Because it counts a slaveholder as eight fifths of a person. Yeah. If that if that makes yeah, sense, yeah. and that to them is is a profoundly undemocratic. Of course, I should as I usually point out at this point, slaveholders in seventeen eighty seven wanted them to count as one. Of course, they should be one to one. That's right. The three fifths clause is actually a, a blow against, but never mind. But that would have been that would have meant that a slaveholder would be two. Yes, that's right. And and that's what they really that's what they that's, that would, that, what they would. And that's what they hated about it, and that's what they viewed as profoundly... Uh, so we're, we're talking about a very strong, what we, I guess, would rightly call Southern populism. Certainly, sure. a, sort of, of, of class anger and, and rage. Yes. Uh, class has been, is, is, is very important to understanding unionism. It's not entirely explanatory. There are plenty yeah. of uh, people, non-slaveholders, as, you know, as everybody knows, who bought into the Confederacy for Klein and Sinker. Yeah. It did not 
you know, plenty of people uh, who fell into these demographics that I'm describing as unionists who went the other way. Right. Well, but so it is, yeah. We're saying racism is a powerful idea, so is unionism. Yeah. And sometimes they can, they, both those ideas can coexist in the same head. And you cannot understand the subsequent course of American history without understanding how they can coexist. Yeah. Because, as we're, I think we're about to just touch on now, the, the abandonment of Reconstruction, the abandonment of black civil rights and black voting rights that happens in the mid-1870s... Or, or even that immediately happens six months in the Johnson's presidency. Yeah. The, the black codes, the, uh, the, 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 the formal eradication of slavery because of the 13th Amendment, but the de facto reinstitution of slavery with the black codes. Um, this in many ways is ideal for the, some of the Deep South unions. Exactly, that's it's right. It's an ideal situation. Yeah. The slaveholder has been basically robbed of their capital, mm -hmm. uh, which is fantastic, because mm -hmm. they're no longer, they're, 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 they've been brought low. And that's right. Yeah. But at the same time, there's still a racial order which is comfortable and comforting and, and keeps them, all whites, in a position of power. And ironically, what really starts to set alarm bells off is, as you just said, this uh, wanted to originally be counted as one at the, at the Constitutional Convention. In the days of presidential reconstruction, before black men had the vote, that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, um, you have uh, non-people are not, men are, and women are not enslaved anymore, but they are still in the census. Yep. So the representation is actually about to go up. And this is what really alarms the North and leads, uh, and, and, and Southern Unionists, uh, many Southern Unionists, and leads to the impl imposition you're of congressional I, I see what you're I see what you're saying, but you're going to have to explain that because okay. it's, it seems, it, it, it's, it's very counterintuitive to the way we might think about things. Yeah. Um, the end of slavery did not necessitate black citizenship. Right. Um, that was not a given. That was not something that followed naturally in people's minds. The, 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 sense, uh, the 14th Amendment comes after the 13th Amendment and is, is several years later because it is not something that um, necessarily followed in people's minds so after the Civil War. I think the conversation people will hear right after this is over the book Black Suffrage. Oh, I think yes. also from UVA. Right? Yeah, yeah. And this will be the heart of that conversation. So, but it's nice to foreground this. True. Um, this is something Lincoln, in literally his last speech, the speech that John Wilkes Booth killed him for, mm -hmm. where he suggests that black veterans in Louisiana mm -hmm. might well deserve the vote. Mm -hmm. He's suggesting he's already been priming the pump with like secret letters and suggestions. The to, very intelligent, the, the ones who have been soldiers, he's been, and he's been suggesting for like a year to the governor in the way that Lincoln works. And if I could jump in here yeah. and say that that letter that you're referring to is to Michael Hahn, who is a Louisiana Unionist, Louisiana. Uh, Louis, uh, who is who features in my book. He's he's in many ways a prototypical Louisiana Unionist. He's uh, in his early 30s when the war starts. He votes for Stephen Douglas. Mm -hmm. He's a Democrat. Uh, he's he was born in Germany, mm -hmm. um, and he becomes uh, the governor. He's the first German-born governor in United States history. Uh, and uh, he becomes the, the governor of Louisiana during the war. Um, and he is the one uh, who Lincoln is corresponding with because Lincoln's trying to take the temperature uh, of, of the South uh, on this. And he is the one, one of the people that Lincoln is, is corresponding with. And he's making these, these suggestions about uh, who might get the vote. That's Michael Hum. So people, Deep South Unionists, Andrew Johnson's a Tennessean, they yeah. see the idea of 
Okay, slavery's gone, but then the Constitution census is rejiggered, so now that there's even more representation of the South. Or that's what's in the off. That's the what's off. threatened here, yes. And there's more, I mean, more representation in Congress of the South than there was before. They'll have more political power. Right. Yeah. It was all we could do to keep them under with a three with three fifths. That's exactly clause. right. That's exactly. If you're not going to give, if you're not going to offset that. Uh, yes. with with by giving black men the vote, mm-hmm. then you, you've actually rewarded the the slaveholding class for for yes. the, the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. And this is what really sets off alarm bells in the north. Uh, and then there's many northerners who are like, you've got to be joking. You know this 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 is the opposite uh, of, of, of why we fought. We cannot, you know, it, it's perverse mm-hmm. to, uh, to, in, to to sort of incentivize uh, that sort of um, and result right. And Andrew Johnson, I'm sure, maybe I misspoke. Is Johnson in favor of this? Is this his sort of his idea? Is this his plan? Because Deep South Unionists can't be in favor of this. No, then they'll they'll be like throttled. No, uh, Deep South Unionists at first are absolutely thrilled. They're not, you know, they're not thrilled that Lincoln is assassinated, but they are thrilled that Johnson has become president. Right. Uh, but they quickly become very disillusioned with Johnson because Johnson is is constantly holding out the olive branch to former Confederates. Yeah. And the former Confederates are really completely unrepentant, rapidly rehabilitated, and, and uh, you know start voting uh, former Confederates into Congress, and um, so and the Unionists revert back to the essentially their situation in the Secession winter, where they're being harassed, they're being marginalized, they're being attacked for their former Unionism, and they see you know they, they essentially they, it's as though they had lost the war. So presidential reconstruction ends when. It ends uh, in in sixty six. Basically, uh, is the sort of the nadir of presidential reconstruction. There are several riots in southern cities: Memphis, New Orleans, Norfolk, uh, in the summer of eighteen sixty six. It's especially important uh, in New Orleans, um, and there's, it's it's almost too complicated to go yeah, into it is. here. It's so complicated. Yeah, reconstruction is is really is uh, is is a very complicated but very important um, history there, but. One thing I do want to mention that I, I think is not, I wish I, you know, I wish more people, I think, appreciate it. I think is super, super important that most people, I think, in the public don't properly grasp is that uh, Andrew Johnson is a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He is put on the ticket in 1864 because, because of his unconditional unionism. And he's an unconditional unionist in the manner of these deep South, you know, these unionists who... Um, are are have no sympathy for enslaved people. Are not really even anti-slavery. They're more anti-planter. They're more uh-huh. racist, really. But they are unconditionally unionist and view the union as a non-negotiable uh-huh. thing, for the reasons that we've discussed earlier. But it it really is so important to understand that the second that the Civil War ends, a white Southern Democrat becomes president of the United States, and. The effect that that has on the course of Reconstruction um, is is profound, and really a, a very important contingent moment in, in American history. That Johnson is is not a Republican. Johnson is a white Southern Democrat from Tennessee, and as soon as the war ends, he's the president. That that they coincide directly. It's 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 remarkable. No one asked him at a press conference, "Who did you vote for in the eighteen sixty election?" Right. <laughs> Um, and you know, and, and Johnson is is a fascinating figure, um, rightly pilloried in many ways for his um, 
his total abandonment of, of freed people and his, his sort of um, courting of yeah, former I've, Confederates. I've, I've enjoyed pillaring him in, 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 in sort of lectures and classes, but I'm beginning to think it's going, we're not, it, we're start, it's starting to get done with a crayon. Yeah, yeah, I think you that's know? right. And there's, there's and, uh, and, but, and in a weird way, your book about Deep South Unionists goes to sort of correcting, at least trying to flesh out some of this. this you stuff. have to understand. He's, otherwise, he's just a psychological, we've gotten to the point where he's just a psychological case. Yeah. He just wants to suck up to the great men of the South. Yeah. Um, it's not there's gotta just be, There's kind of be something more than that. It's, the, the real key to understanding is not to forget that this guy is a white Southern Democrat from Tennessee. Yeah. Not and not a not a John Bell. Not, no, he's not. not, a, not a, no, that's right. He. This he's is a guy who loves Andrew Jackson. Yep. That is his political hero. Yep. Um, and that's you know, um, I very often wonder what would have happened during nullification if Jackson hadn't been president and it hadn't been a sort of undermining of his authority. Would he have? You know, that's a different thing that's altogether. Now you're gonna take us down. Yeah, yeah, not necessary. But the point is that um, Southern Unionists are really very quickly disillusioned with Johnson's leadership and lacking any alternative, they turn to the enfranchisement of recently freed people, to the black vote, as a way of sort of curtailing the rampant Confederate, uh, former Confederate Democratic vote. So in a weird way, these people for whom Andrew Johnson is their guy turn to the radical Republicans for help. Yeah, that's we, right. We can't overemphasize the irony, the exquisite irony you know, history, that history is yeah. full of. That's right. You know, here they are. The people that's going to save them is Thaddeus Stevens. Yeah, and, and the black vote, the uh, black which vote? they would have been, they would have said you were out of your mind if you had told them that in 1860. And as with emancipation, as a way to end, the, as a way to more effectively end the war, mm-hmm. they view black suffrage as a means to an end they are not interested in black suffrage as something that is right in and of itself as something that is owed to black men and women you know black men as citizens they are interested in it as a way to limit the power of former confederates they use it as a tool it is not the end in and of itself and that's very very important to understand they're, they're not actually concerned with the rights of black people. They want to give black people this right in order to achieve a different outcome. So this double-mindedness, as it were, is occurring within legislatures that are filled with these deep South Unionists and with recently freed blacks. Yeah. And so you've got people who are pulling sort of in the same direction for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. And who despise each other too? That's the, right. And and the unity of the of the unionist cause, the cause of saving the union, mm-hmm. as soon as that has been, as soon as the war ends, that unanimity within the unionist camp in the South evaporates, and you have uh, differences start to emerge between these Southern unionists over what was actually achieved in saving the Union and what the best way forward is. Some former Unionists are completely unwilling to countenance the black vote. Mm-hmm. Um, some view it as a necessary evil. And some, there are, they, I, I, should, I should add that there are some Southern Unionists that view it as the, as the wave of the future, that it is inevitable that it is, uh, represents a, the progress in the sense that a Northerner might have seen it. So we're getting near our, our closing time. Yeah, but um, where does this where where is the end of congressional reconstruction in eighteen seventy six? Where does it leave 
Deep South Unionists? Well, many Deep South Unionists, uh, especially in Alabama, the ones who had voted for Stephen Douglas in 1860 as Democrats, go back to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They essentially throw up their hands and they give up. Um, they, they cannot countenance um, being allied so visibly with uh, black Alabamians. And they've, they actually proved to be the crucial voting bloc in re- voting in a Democratic governor in that state in 1872 and thus essentially ending Reconstruction in the state. The, the, the pressure of social ostracization, marginalization, violence sometimes from the Klan tells on them. And they essentially say, look, we've saved the Union and that's, that's enough. And we're going to hold the color line now. Um, one thing that uh, I think is, is important, again, I think for people to understand, the Civil War, the, the Confederate strategy during the Civil War was, they knew the South was never, the Confederacy, I should say, uh, was never going to conquer the North. The, the, the goal from the beginning for the Confederacy was to get the North to give up, to get the North to say, this isn't worth it, let them go. And they, there are elements in Northern society, that the Peace Democrats, that, that are voicing this opinion, but they, they essentially are, want the North to say it's not worth it. They want the Northern public to turn against the war in a way that sort of is similarly to the way the American public turned away, turned against Vietnam. They essentially want the North to say it's not worth it and throw up their hands and, and let the Confederacy go. When Lincoln is reelected in 1864, that's, that's, that's over. And they realize that that's not going to happen. And that's sort of, in many ways, that is the final turn, final nail in the coffin of the Confederacy. That's the turning point. <laughs> that's the no, once, it is. and the, and the, and the it is, it's very clear that, well, you, can the, see it, you can see in desertions. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah, it really, it starts to skyrocket after yeah. that because they know that the North is not going to stop mm-hmm. and that it's, it's basically over. Um, they wanted the North to throw up their hands and give up and, they, and Lincoln's election says we're not going to do that. However, that is essentially the same strategy that they adopt during Reconstruction. They want the North to say, forget it. It's not worth it. And it works. And it works. It's as, it's a, as I think, um, I forget who it was now. Oh, is it, oh, oh yeah, Mark uh, Grimsby, uh, Grimsby Grizzly, at, at yeah. OSU says it's a, it's a successful insurgency. Yes. It, I mean, it has all the hallmarks of a, of a successful insurgency from 1866 to 1876. And people, you know, in American history have a very ta- hard time um, accepting the fact that um, political violence really carried the day in the in during Reconstruction in the Confederacy in the former Confederacy, you have Grant um, sort of expressing his frustration at these annual autumnal outbreaks of violence. And he's expressing the frustration of the whole North, saying, "You know, we cannot continue to prop up the black vote in the South by force." Um, and essentially, they. They give up. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the Confederacy loses the war, but how essentially white supremacy wins, wins the peace, the peace yep. in the South. And we all know that essentially, you know, it takes another hundred years or so yeah. uh, for black civil rights. And, and, and yeah. And in that time, I mean, this is, this is more trivial, but I was thinking like some of the consequences you see. Uh, there is what? There are eight non-consecutive years of a Democratic administration between Buchanan and Wilson. Right. That means that even a Republican in the Deep South can make a living as a postmaster yeah, or, or something like that. So that props up a rump of a Deep South Republican Party. 
Yeah. Until, but you can see the ostracism that will eventually lead to the split of the, the lily white Republican Party, you know, in the South, which will split the black vote from the Republican Party mm-hmm. over a period, well, basically happens pretty quickly in the 30s and 40s. But if that, that is, that's, that's set up to happen because of that, the, the pressures that existed from the very beginning in a coalition between unionists it's and blacks. Always a tenuous coalition. Yes. There's a, a really great line in DeBow's review, this sort of very, the, the, yeah. journal, the organ of, um, in some ways, the southern sort of... Southern intellectuals, uh, yeah. elite opinion. Yeah, the gentry in some yeah. ways. And it, there's an editorial during Reconstruction that comes out and it's directly addressed to, to, to white Southern Unionists and Republicans saying, you can't, you know, better your friend across the street than a friend in New Hampshire. You know, you cannot oppose an overwhelming public sentiment. And that essentially is it in a nutshell, that the Albanians have friends, you know, in New Hampshire politically, but not across the street. And that's what tells on them and what causes these former unionists to abandon their, their, their black former comrades um, because they view the, the, the integrity of the union as having been secured, and that's what they were always in it for. So it's easy to see why in the Lost Cause mythology, Deep South unionists would be put down the memory hole. Yeah. But they would put down the memory hole in the North as well. I mean, and we got a situation where Heck, up into the 70s. I mean, well, I mean, profiles encourage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Kennedy is celebrating. Um, he's celebrating the people who voted not to impeach Andrew Johnson. Right. Andrew Johnson is, is seen as a tragic, kind of heroic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that has a lot to do with the Democratic Party coalition for most of the 20th century, mm-hmm. um, I, I suppose, mm-hmm. is the way things are seen. Um, but... What 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 else can account for the way that northern northern unionists, you know, rock ripped Illinois Republicans, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, yeah, Republicans, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did they forget their friends in the South? Well, there's a couple reasons. Uh, one is the trend in um, scholarly understandings, and and thus that's sort of what filters down into popular understandings of the Civil War, as of a real acquiescence to the lost cause uh, yeah. as a narrative. And a very crucial tenet of the lost cause is the unanimity of the white Southern population, uh, for which there is basically no room for unionists. Which, and so, which is very interesting, because that can be deployed also by very self-conscious anti-racist progressives as well. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's a very, it's a very, um, it, it's a very agile idea, mm-hmm. which can be used in different ways. But go on. No, but the the, the degree, the prevalence of the lost cause ideology, and the the assumption of a uniform opinion of the white South in favor of the Confederacy um, in many ways caused scholars, people to presume that unionism, especially in the Deep South, had not did not exist. Right. Uh, but another reason that I think uh, memory of unionism in the Deep South vanished the way it did, um, and we've sort of hinted at it a bit in our, our, our discussion to this point, is that the unionists themselves allowed that unionism memory to be forgotten. They didn't be, to be Because they were so, they had no enthusiasm for the social consequences of that unionism, of, of emancipation, of black voting, um, and they did not want to be associated with it. Yeah. Over time, unionism and republicanism, republican sort of politics became very closely intertwined and inextricable from one another. And 
late in the 19th century and the early 20th century, being a white Southerner and being a and, and re unionist Republican identity were, were almost impossible to reconcile with one another. And the white Southern identity essentially is the one that won out. So... Unless you're like way up in the hollers of yeah. west, west, well, kind of the upper south, and that's but, you know of, of Western Virginia, like I think of Linwood Holton's family, the yeah. first Republican governor since Reconstruction of Virginia. Sure, um, they're up in somewhere outside of Roanoke, you know, southwest of Roanoke, or a place like uh, you know the the very kind of anomalous Winston County in Alabama, which which actually votes Republican right up to the party switch. Uh, and actually, it just stays Republican. Now is, is now is the deepest red part of that state. Uh -huh. um, but uh, yeah, there are there are pockets of it in places like the Appalachians and the Upper right. South. It's more it's more of but a sort it, of uh, a kin kin okay. rivalry. As you or, said at the very beginning, we can say you know those are the people that marry their cousins or their sisters. But that's the make, reputation. Make moonshine, and they're just that the way they are. And that they're sort of outside of society. Yeah, outside of society. That's why they're Republicans. <laughs> But, but that's part of what allowed this, as you say, to be forgotten to the extent that it was, is that uh, unionism, where it existed in, um, in a sort of, not a huge concentration, but a, one that you can't fail to notice when you start to look at it in the, in the 1860s, uh, is that these people in North Alabama, these, peop these uh, unionists in the Deep South, allowed the memory of their own unionism to be forgotten because they found so little to celebrate. Uh, in so much of what became associated with that union. Yeah, you begin, <laughs> you begin this the book with this fantastic anecdote of a friend of Tennessee and Glenda McWord or Todd asked her if she would care to join the United Daughters of Confederacy. She says, sure, and she does her genealogy and finds out, oh my goodness, my ancestor fought in Company K of the 1st Alabama Cavalry, USA. And the word that she uses is she is, quote, dismayed yeah. to learn that. And that, to me, it says so much about memory in American history and the Civil War. Only in America, yeah. in many ways, would somebody be dismayed to learn that their ancestor had not been a Confederate, but had been a Unionist. Yeah. That's like being French and saying, Grandfather was in the Resistance, darn. Yeah. You know, it's, it says a great deal that, that that's the way that the Confederacy lives or has lived in American popular consciousness, that it was that the right thing to do yeah. if you're from Alabama. And that this woman could be dismayed. Or, uh, uh, to be even, I mean, it's like they say with the English Civil War, was the Cavaliers wrong but romantic? Right. You know, even by 1999, you might say, okay, yeah, great, they were wrong, but now my is on the boring side. Wrong but romantic is Southern, is the Confederacy in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, it's a very elegant way of phrasing that that I think rings very true for, for memory in, a, in large parts of the former Confederacy. It's wrong but romantic. Yeah. And that's why Glenda Todd was, quote, dismayed. And yeah. I just thought that there was so much in that word choice to be dismayed that your ancestor had been a unionist mm -hmm. from Alabama. And that tells you um, of how the memory has come, come down, when it has come down. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great book. It's thought-provoking. Um, what do you think is the main takeaway from um, that we should take away from Deep South Unionists about unionism and the power of its power and importance? I think if people can come away with it, understanding how unionism in the mid-19th century could be divorced from um, emancipation or civil rights as a, as a cause. They would go a long way to understanding the subsequent course of American history, 
where the black population of the South is essentially abandoned to the mercies of its the, the former Confederate slaveholding class again. Uh, otherwise, the subsequent course of American history doesn't really make any sense. Um, and that unionism was achieved, civil rights were not achieved, but they were not seen as, as, as linked to the degree that we want them to be. And I think for that reason, um, one of the key takeaways I'd like people to have is that Deep South Unionists made a a bold, a brave choice to, to, to fight for the Union and to, to preserve the Union. And, and that needs to be uh, recognized. But we also need to recognize that they might not have done so for the reasons that we wish. They didn't do so to end slavery. They didn't do so to seek justice for enslaved people. And if you can understand how somebody can fight for the Union without any solicitude for the enslaved, you can understand American history a lot better. My guest today has been Clayton Butler. He is author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Clayton, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 